Good morning. My name is Joseph. I'm doing the second Bible reading, which is taken from Daniel chapter 12, reading the whole chapter from verse 1 to verse 13. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. It will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in a book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and see the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way to the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. This is God's word. Uh, thanks, Joseph. Uh, my name is Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. And I'll be giving our sermon today. It'll be great if you could uh, keep your Bible open with you as we work through it. It's a bit shorter than our passage last week, but still a difficult one. Uh, so hopefully having our Bibles open will help with that. Uh, but as we begin, I'm going to pray, so please uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the Bible and that it shows us what the world is like. But in particular, and more importantly, it shows us what you are like. And so we pray as we come before your word now uh, that you would be working through it and through your spirit, to shape and mould us into the image of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, I was talking to a friend recently, and he told me something his mum had told him, a bit of advice that his mum had given him. Do you know what that advice was? She said, David, don't marry a woman that doesn't cry in movies. I mean, what a piece of advice to give someone, to give your son. Those who are single here, keep that in mind. Don't marry a woman or a man who doesn't cry in movies. 
Well, why would she say that? Why is that the advice she gave to him? Well, because movies are designed to tug at our hearts, to tug at our emotions. And so if someone doesn't cry in a movie, then they either have no emotions or they're an engineer. See, crying in movies shows our emotions. And often the place we cry the most in movies is right at the end. In that final heartbreaking scene, or in that final joyfully heart-lifting scene. See, the emotional punch is often seen at the end of movies. For example, I'm sure most of us here have seen uh, Toy Story 3. Do you remember how that ends? As Woody, the main toy of the movies, is sitting there with all the other toys, and as Andy, his owner, and the one he's been with for many, many years, walks away having kindly donated Woody to another child so that, uh, that he can, this other child can experience the blessing of Woody, Woody looks and he whispers to himself, so long, partner. And it's uh, such a touching moment, a moment of great sadness as uh, his owner is leaving, but also a moment filled with hope and joy for the future of a new owner. Or, I don't know if you've also seen E.T., have you seen that with that uh, weird little alien guy? And as he's about to head home at the end of the movie, and his good friend Elliot is so sad about uh, losing his friend E.T., E.T. reaches out and points to Elliot's forehead and says, I'll be right here. And again, it's both so sad, but also so hopeful. And I'm sure in both of those movies, uh, there were countless tears that were shed. Uh, Some tears of sadness and also some tears of happiness. See, the sign of a good movie is if you're crying at the end. Endings are important. And today, we're dealing with endings. Uh, Quite a few endings. Uh, We're ending our sermon series in the book of Daniel, and that's because we're up to the final chapter, the end chapter of the book of Daniel. So we see that ending. But we also see the end of Daniel's life. Uh, The book, or almost the end of Daniel's life, the book of Daniel started with Daniel as a young man, a teenager. But now, as the book ends, he's almost at the end of his life. He's in his 80s. And what a life it's been filled with ups and downs, uh, captured and carried off as an exile, as a teenager, forced to serve a foreign king, and then climbing through the ranks against adversity, and even being thrown into the lion's den. And now, at the end of his life, a wonderful vision And that's what we see in uh, chapter 12 is actually the end of the vision that started in chapter 11, so it's another ending. And in this vision, in the end of this vision, in chapter 12, God allows Daniel to see the end of the world. Because that's what today's passage is about, it's about the end of the world. And it shows us what the end of the world will look like and when the end of the world will come. And so then, what will the end of the world look like? Now, the first thing we see is that it'll be a time of great distress. Did you see that in verse 1? Have a look at it with me. At that time, at the end of the world, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. See, the end of the world will be a time of great distress Uh, So great that Michael, the angel who protects God's people, will come. And so great that there'll be nothing like it 
and nothing as distressing as it in all of human history, which is uh, quite a big claim to make. Think about all the distressing things that have happened in the world. For example, the Black Death. Uh, that was a plague in the Middle Ages that caused a swelling in the groin and in the armpits and in the neck, uh, caused people to vomit blood. It was horrendous and it was deadly. Uh, it's estimated that it killed between 75 to 200 million people. Uh, in Europe, it killed at least 60% of the population. It caused untold fear and horror. But yet, as distressing as that was, the end of the world will be more distressing. Or what about the potato famine in Ireland? Uh, it sounds like a bit of a funny thing, they ran out of potatoes, but actually it was a horrendous thing. More than one million people died and another million people fled Ireland because of the, the lack of food. Uh, it's estimated that the population of Ireland dropped by a quarter, 25%. It was a time of great anguish and great fear as people literally withered away from lack of food. But yet, as distressing as that was, the end of the world will be more distressing. Or even at the moment, we see it with COVID all around the world, particularly recently I've been struck by India. I don't know if you're following the situation going on there with COVID, but mass burnings of bodies, hospitals overflowing, Patients dying in the street because they don't have enough medical equipment. I heard one story of a family where they turned up to visit their sick relative and got told, actually, your relative is dead and no one communicated it to them because their system is just so overwhelmed. It's extremely distressing to see the footage of what's going on over there and our hearts break for them. But yet, as distressing as that is, the end of the world will be more distressing it's an incredible claim to make. And so the question then is, why will it be more distressing than all of those distressing things? And it's because in those final days, at the end of time, there'll be an intensifying of the persecution of God's people. Now, in a sense, that's the pattern of all of human history. The persecution of God's people has gotten worse and worse and worse. Of course, it's always been tough, it started off with Christians being fed to the lions, but slowly over the course of history, we do see an intensifying of that. Now, of course, for us here in the West, that seems like a bit of a surprise. In God's kindness, we've experienced a time of great blessing where we've been allowed to carry on with our beliefs without too much persecution, though that might be changing now. But we've got to remember, that's not the normal pattern of history. For example, did you know that more Christians have been killed in this last century than in all of the other 19 centuries before it combined. And did you know that in North Korea today, it's a death sentence to be a Christian? Either you're executed or you're sent off to a slave labor camp where you die in short order. See, that's the pattern of human history. And in a sense, the persecution will just keep getting worse and worse and worse until the end until the final day when Jesus comes, and somehow before that, it will reach its climax. And that will be greatly distressing. But there's hope, hope for God's people, because we see it as uh, verse one, in the way verse 1 finishes. Have a look at the second half of verse 1. 
But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. For those whose names are written in the book, that is, uh, the book of life, uh, that is, those who belong to God, for everyone who belongs to God, they'll be delivered. God will save His people. Now, of course, it's not that God will uh, save them and prevent that persecution, that distress and danger from happening. And the book of Daniel makes that so, so clear to us. Uh, Particularly, while God does save uh, Daniel and some of his friends throughout, we've got to remember particularly how the book starts. Because remember, the whole start of the book is that God's people have been attacked and slaughtered and then carried off into exile in Babylon. See, this is the truth. God doesn't uh, remove his people out from the distress, but rather delivers them through the distress. He sustains us and he'll deliver us through it. Not from death, because as we've seen, God's people are often killed from their faith, but rather he'll deliver us from that final judgment. Because the second thing we learn about the end of the world is that it'll be a time of great division. A time when all of humanity is divided out and put into either one of two categories. Did you see what they were? Have a look at verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. See, all of those multitudes who sleep in the, in the dust, that is, um, those who have died, that is, all people, uh, will awake to two different fates. For some, for those who have trusted in God and in Christ's death on the cross for forgiveness of our sins, then death will be done away with. The curse of Genesis 3 will be undone and will have everlasting life. I mean, what an incredible thing. Life that never ends. Life not tainted by sickness or sadness. Life not tainted by pain or persecution. Life not tainted by disease or even death. See, for those whose names are written in the book of life, There will be everlasting life with God their maker, the way that God intended it to be. In verse 3 then, I use as an illustration to make this point. Did you see what it says? Have a look at verse 3 with me. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See, that's what our future will be, shining brightly like stars in the sky hanging there, pouring out light forever and ever, never dulling, never losing our shine, never growing dark. See, this is the deliverance that God promises His people, an ultimate deliverance from death. I mean, how joyful that final day will be when we're taken to our eternal home, there to rest with God for all of eternity. What a joyful day that will be. But for others, for those who didn't put their trust in Jesus, who weren't one of God's people, who didn't have their name in the book of life, then did you see what they'll awake to? To shame and everlasting contempt. I mean, what a terrible, terrible fate. Imagine that. Imagine that feeling of shame. The guilt of knowing we did the wrong thing, the guilt of knowing we rejected God our King, imagine that 
forever, for all of eternity, never ending, never going away, for all of eternity, enduring the shame and contempt of having scorned God, the rightful King. See, that's what's waiting for those who don't belong to God. See, the end of the world is a stark and sobering picture of division. And we actually see it again in verse 10. It tells us of the purification and refinement of many. Now, that's another way of speaking of those who go to everlasting life. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Many will be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. See, those who belong to God will be purified and refined, made white. We might ask, well, why white? Well, because whiteness in apocalyptic language is all about being clean, about being pure. In a sense, we know this. I think about all the weddings you might have been to and how the bride wears a white wedding dress. At least originally, that was to symbolize purity, to symbolize cleanness. And in a sense, that's what's going on here. God's people, the wise will be made white, will be made pure. How will it happen? Well, it's only by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. We see that particularly so clearly in that other great apocalyptic literature of the Bible, Revelation. Uh, We heard it read out before, but we'll uh, read it again. So keep your finger here, but flip over with me to Revelation chapter 7, and we'll look at verse 14. So Revelation... Chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, speaking of those who belong to God. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, if we want to be white and pure, if we want our names written in the book of life, if we want to be taken up to everlasting life on that final day at the end of the world, then there's only one way to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, to have Jesus' death be a payment for our sins. Friends, if you're putting your trust in anything else, then that won't do the job for you. When the end of the world comes, there'll be a great division. And if you haven't been purified by the blood of the Lamb, then you won't rise to everlasting life, but only to shame and everlasting contempt. See, don't be caught out. Don't let that final day come and catch you unaware. Put your trust in the Lamb so that on that day of great distress and great division, for you, it'll be a day of great joy as you go to everlasting life. And so that's the vision that Daniel's given, or the end of the vision, about what the end of the world will look like. Uh, once, uh, once he's been given it, he's told to seal it up in verse 4. Now, the sealing isn't about keeping it secret, but rather preserving the message until it's needed. It's about keeping it and preserving it for those who'd seek it, those who'd want to understand, rather than going here and there, chasing the wisdom of the world. And so the vision ends and uh, Daniel then sees two figures standing before him, uh, one on each bank. And these figures then talk to the great figure from the start of the vision, chapter 10. Now remember from there, this is likely the pre-incarnate Jesus. And uh, in verse 6, they then ask this great figure, 
When will the world end? When will this vision that you've just shown us, when will that come to pass? And it's a good question. It's um, one I'm sure uh, we might be thinking. It's certainly one that's generated a lot of uh, discussion and thought over human history. I did a quick count, and do you know how many different times I found that people tried to predict when the end of the world was going to come? Do you know how many it was? Over 175. There's over 175 different predictions throughout history of people saying, this is the date the world will end. And so it's a question I'm sure we're all interested. We all want to know, when will the world end? And this great figure, Jesus, he answers them with a solemn oath. Uh, We know it's a solemn oath for a few reasons. One, because in the book of Deuteronomy, we find out that the minimum number of witnesses needed for an oath is two. And we have these two figures here. But then we also see that he raises his hand and swears by God. And he tells them when the world will end. Have a look at verse 7. The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. And so when will the end of the world come? Well, it will be a time, times, and half a time. Now, if you've been here with us as we've worked through the book of Daniel, you'll be uh, quite familiar with that term. It's come up a number of times. It's a time, that is one, times, that is two, and half a time, which is half a time. And so what's that add up to? Three and a half, uh, which is instantly half of seven. But uh, the whole point of these numbers, remember, in the book of Uh, in the book of Daniel or in apocalyptic language, numbers are symbolic. They're meant to represent certain things. And so what we've got here is not a specific number of years. It's not a specific date or specific time or specific month, but rather the point is that it's a time of completeness. It's a finite, specified, designated amount of time. And so Daniel hears this, and I'm I'm sure he's he's thinking what maybe we're thinking, that, well, that's a bit of an unsatisfactory answer. I'd like to know more specifically. And he says, I don't understand. And so he asks for more detail in verses 8, in verse 8. But God politely tells him to go away, uh, verse 9, because the words are sealed. That is, they're determined, they're finished. Uh, Daniel shouldn't be looking for any more revelation. He's already been given all that he's going to be given. And just like Daniel, it reminds us that uh, we shouldn't be uh, looking for and don't need more revelation. The closing words of Daniel here and also uh, the closing words of the book of Revelation make that so clear to us. We have the Bible and that's all we need. And so Daniel's to go on his way, but as he does, he's actually given one more glimpse of when the end of the world will happen. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits and for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. And so again, what we get with these figures is that they're um, apocalyptic figures because uh, 1,290 is approximately three and a half years 
just in days. And so uh, what I think it emphasizes then, being in days this time instead of in years before, is that it's been carefully measured. God has carefully measured out the number of days, the time before the end of the world. It's completely and utterly controlled by God. But of course, as I'm sure you noticed as we read, there's then that second figure, and we might be thinking, well, why does it increase by 45 days on the second figure, 1,335 days? And I think what it's saying is that we need to trust God through the suffering and then just a little bit more. Trust God to the end of the world and then just a little bit more. 1,290 days, then just a little bit more, up to 1,335 And so what we've got to remember, though, when we're working through apocalyptic literature and when we're looking at these numbers here, is that the point isn't to give us a specified, specific number of days, to give us a specified, specific amount of time, but rather the key is to show us that the time of the end is known by God. God knows when it's coming and God controls when it's coming. And so He's limited the time of distress that His God, His people will go through. And so, therefore, blessed are those who do persevere through the distress by clinging to God. And then the whole book ends with a final word of comfort to Daniel. Uh, He's to go on his way until the end of his life, and then he'll die and rest, and then finally rise again to his inheritance. Have a look at verse 13. As for you, go on your way till the end. You will rest And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. It's such a wonderfully comforting end to this whole book that Daniel and us, as God's people, we can rest securely, washed and made clean by the pure blood of the Lamb. We can rest assured knowing that our fate is sealed, that on that final day, at the end of the world, we'll rise to eternal life. And so this is the end. There will come a day when you stand before God. And what will you see on that day? Well, you'll see shame and contempt for some, an everlasting life for you if you've put your trust in Jesus, if you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And I wonder, what will you be feeling then on that day? I'll tell you what I think I'll be feeling. I'll be feeling joy and I'll be feeling thankfulness and I'll be uh, feeling excitement about the everlasting life to come. But do you know what else I think I'll be feeling? I think I'll be kicking myself that I didn't believe it more. Now, I certainly believe that this is our fate, everlasting life beside our King. I certainly believe that yet I don't often believe it as much as I should. I don't often live in light of it as much as I should by living for that end. And I wonder whether you can resonate a bit. And so this week, as I was reflecting on the passage, I spent a bit of time reflecting on my own life and asking myself, what would it look like if I lived according to the truth of my end? What would it look like if my life matched my belief? And as I was thinking about it, there were three things in particular, I think, that uh, 
three differences that would make in my life if I lived more according to that. And maybe you'll uh, recognize some of these in your own life. The first thing is this, I think if I lived more in light of my belief about the end, then I'd be less tied to the things of this world. I'd be less tied to the things of this world. I'd be less invested in the pleasures and in possession and in worldly things. Now, certainly it's not that those are bad things. They're not bad things. They're good gifts from God. But they're just that. They're gifts for now that don't last on into eternity. And if we live in light of the end, then we'll recognize that, that we'll put it into perspective. Because I don't think going into eternity, when we're in everlasting life with God in heaven, we won't look back on this life and think to ourselves, gee, I wish I'd invested more in the things of this world. That just won't be what we'll think. In fact, we'll think the opposite. We'll think, I wish I had been less tied to the things of this world. And the second thing that I I think would look different in my life if I was uh, living in light more of my belief about the future is that I'd be less distracted by the challenges of this world. Because our eternal perspective puts those challenges we face now into perspective. Because we realize as we look at the book of Daniel that there are challenges, there are persecution for us as God's people. And I don't know about you, but certainly for me, it's easy for me to be frustrated by that, to look at the way as Christians we're increasingly being drowned out, we're increasingly being misrepresented in the media, Uh, We're increasingly being denied a seat at the table of public discourse. And I can look at that and get frustrated by those challenges and get distracted by those challenges. But as Daniel's vision and as the whole book of Daniel reminds us, is that that's just normal for God's people. This world is filled with challenges and persecution. And so if we live in light of that and remember the end, then we'll be less distracted by that. And instead we'll just get on and be more invested with the things of eternal consequences. And that's the third thing, I think. The third difference it would make is I'd be more invested in things of eternal consequences. See, living in light of that final day will give me a greater urgency to tell people about it, that the final day is coming, a day when all of humanity will be divided, some to eternal, everlasting life, but others, many, countless, countless many, to everlasting shame and contempt. And so there must be urgency in our proclamation of that truth. We should be like the stars in verse 3, shining brightly, proclaiming brightly to all. I mean, think about the stars, they're literally trillions of miles away, and yet we can see them shining because they're so bright, they shine so brightly, and that's what we're to be like, the wise there proclaiming boldly, urgently proclaiming. That should be what we're known for. That should be what we're passionate about. Because if this is the eternal fate of our loved ones, then how can we not be completely and utterly consumed with telling them about it? And so as I spent time reflecting on it this week, those were the things I was struck by. Those were the things that it might change in my life if my life matched more often with my belief about the end. And I wonder for you what it would be. And so can I encourage you this week as you go away from church today 
to reflect on that, to spend time asking yourself, what would it look like if you lived according to the truth of your end? What would it look like if your life matched your belief more? See, the end matters because it governs how we live now. And certainly for Daniel, he lived in light of the truth of his end. I mean, right throughout the whole book, we've seen what an incredible figure Daniel is. Think about it, we've seen him stand firm in the face of uh, the pressure to conform to Babylonian society, the pressure to eat their food and worship their gods, and yet, he stood firm in the face of it, even at great personal cost, or potential personal cost, even at great danger to himself. And so the question is, how could he do that? Well, because he knew of his end fate, safe in God's arms. We've seen Daniel boldly declare uh, messages to King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar, even though he knew they were not messages those kings wanted to hear, and it could have potentially been quite dangerous for him. And so, how was he able to proclaim God's truth so boldly? Well, because he was living in light of his end, safe in God's arms. We've seen Daniel refuse to stop praying, even at great personal cost. And we've even then seen him thrown into the lion's den because of it. How was Daniel able to uh, refuse to stop worshipping God, to stop praying to God, even on pain of death? Well, because he knew of his end fate, safe in God's arms. See, Daniel shows us what it looks like to live in light of the end to live in light of the fact that one day all people will rise again, some to everlasting life, but many to everlasting shame and contempt. This, this world is coming to an end. One day it will end. Are you living in light of that end? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, the end of this vision in chapter 12, and we thank you for the way it shows us and tells us what the end of the world will look like. Uh, thank you for the way it prepares us for the great distress that is here and is continuing to grow. Uh, we pray that you would uh, continue to deliver us through it, uh, not that you would remove us from it, but that you would sustain us through it. And particularly, we thank you for the deliverance you'll give us at the end. When all of humanity is divided, uh, we will go to everlasting life. We thank you for Jesus and his life and death for us, the way that his blood, the blood of the lamb, washes us clean so that we might indeed have everlasting life. And we thank you for the incredible hope that that gives us. And we pray that you would be uh, helping us to live more in light of that truth, that the way we live now would be shaped so much by the way the world will end. And we pray that you would uh, give us great boldness and urgency, in particular, to be more invested in things of eternal consequence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.